Shin, thanks for joining us today on the AdDot podcast, and it's a real pleasure to have you here. And uh, first of all, I'd like to give you the opportunity to say your name as you would pronounce it, and that way, for those who would know better than the way I pronounce it, <laughs> it sounds correct. So I'm Shin. Shin is my name. Yeah. So what I want to know first is. I know that you're a chief architect at Danske Bank in Denmark, and uh, can you tell us just a bit about your role there, um, how that works out for you, and what kinds of work that you do? Yeah, sure thing. So I work in Danske Bank, which is a Scandinavian bank in almost all Scandinavian countries. I'm based in Denmark in the headquarters. So right now the bank is undergoing a digital transformation from a mainframe-based legacy platform to a private cloud-oriented、uh, microservice. Architecture. At least that's the aspirations. At the same time, we're going through a organizational transformation from being a very hierarchical organization to a agile. Like、uh, we we used to say, we're being Spotify, right? So so just to say that、uh, the teams are being smaller, sort of aligning with the、um, size of our services. So my job here is basically I'm an implementation person. So being a Chief software architect. I、um, my preferred job. There, there are other people with similar can say uh, uh, job titles, uh, uh, doing other type of job. But what I do is that I'm immersed in these teams in our core domains, in in these domains with high complexity. I'm trying to work out、um, how do we go planning step by step this transformation. How can we do a smart job both at the same time changing the bank by. Changing our system landscape and organizational landscape, and at the same time we have all these running the bank tasks like compliance. So things need to be stable、uh, while learning new things. We still we still have to keep the shop going. So that's that's、um, there's a lot of interesting stuff here,、um, and also a lot of resistance and、uh, uncertainty at this.、Uh, so so I call myself a sort of a socio technical architect. So dealing with all kinds of、uh, complexity factors、uh, using different levers. I'm a big fan of DDD, just like you yourself. Um, uh, um, yeah, so using DDD also to to connect the dots. <laughs> oh, domain-driven design being. So、um, I'm actually really interested in the organization part of this, and pretty much every podcast that we've recorded so far, we crossed the path, I guess, of Conway's law and. I've known about Conway's law for a long time, but the more I work in software, it just becomes this inevitable, unchangeable law. Is what it is, you know. And and so you just have to be very aware of it. How is that situation working out in the kind of reorganization, or however you would, you know, describe that within the bank? So I'm also personally very intrigued by、uh, Conway's law. So Conway's law basically says that the、uh, the software contour, the,、uh, the the way the software、uh, is being designed,、uh, usually follows the same structure as the communication patterns、uh, of an organization, right? Yeah. So right now. Um, we are actually what we're trying to do is what、uh, I think、uh, ThoughtWorks calls this a inverse. Conway's maneuver. So basically, saying okay, so point of departure, a really, really、uh, monolithic、uh, mainframe-based、uh, landscape where we, you have a huge database. Basically, everybody can tap into, all the systems can tap into. It's not very modular, and you, although you have these services, but it's a deep. Big deployment every time, right? So then you do this thing. You say, "Okay,、uh, we don't want this anymore." So how do we do this? We reorg. We cut the big departments into smaller teams. We are we are called tribes and squads, and you know the, the, all, all all kinds of uh, Spotify uh, vocabulary. So now the teams are getting smaller. A、uh, two piece team or slightly bigger, but the software baseline hasn't changed. It's still you still have these systems that are you know the being used by the customer, being used、uh, doing payments, doing really heavy lifting of transactions and so forth. So、um, although the enterprise architects did a really really marvelous job in cutting you know the, the system landscape to say okay you get this chunk you get that piece and and then trying to fit the team boundary with the system boundary, but it's never going to be a perfect fit. And these systems are still being huge. So what happens now is that the、um, <laughs> With the ambition of overcoming Conway's law, is to 
you know, the the teams being small, they can communicate among themselves in a small microservice oriented world, so they don't have these dependencies. But these dependencies don't just go away. So being small has actually introduced an extra challenge here. The communication challenge, instead of being in the same department, now we have to negotiate with teams in different tribes under different leadership. The decision making process has all of a sudden become far more complex than what it used to be. You know, you have this you have this command and control structure that they're. There used to be managers making these decisions if nobody can make these decisions. Now we're supposed to make to be self-empowering teams making local decisions. But still, there is such a need for an uh, architecture alignment and knowing who is doing what at what pace in what sequence. And all this under the fast pace of business change, because uh, the business is not going to wait for us to reorg and 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 then do all the uh, technical implementation baseline or infrastructure. All right, it's going to change. All these requirements keep coming in, and we just have to cope with it. So what I see is happening now is that uh, the complexity of uh, organization and making teams perform is getting higher, really getting higher. I really look forward to. Getting you know somewhere from, from we just started this journey so so there we're still in the middle of uh, struggling with the uh, um, startup <laughs> phase uh, so um, so I kind of um, I'm I'm really curious to see where this is going to lead us to be honest that's where we are honestly speaking <laughs> sure and I wonder too. Actually, we're working with a client recently that is using the Spotify model as well. And one thing that they've done, and I'm not sure if this is actually part of that model, but、um, they're basically forming product companies within the company. And now these product companies are like mini. You know, they have a what they refer to as a mini CEO, mini organization. Is that also what you're doing? Similar. Yeah, that's a that's a really really interesting、uh, perspective, and that's what I personally would really be in for, favor of doing. But then, you know, again,、uh, the、uh, Conway's law and cognitive load came into play in in the way we organize ourselves. So again,、uh, there is、uh, this new vocabulary called team topologies. So, so one alternative of organizing a bank is basically you say, okay, you are an end-to-end product teams. These guys you're serving, you're doing all the products for, let's say, corporate customers, and these teams you're you're doing different problem、uh, products for、uh, retail customers or institutional customers, and then you you're in charge of this end-to-end flow.、But、the truth is, in each、uh, segment or even in each sec、uh, subsegment with one product. The cognitive load is so high, so you can't possibly make a gift one team or just a, a set of teams within the count of a, a five or a, a one one digit that the whole responsibility for serving just a subsegment. So what we have chosen to do, well, it it wasn't my personal choice, but what the enterprise architecture team. Deemed proper in this way is that、uh, what we org we we have、um, like I'm right now working with the backend team. So、uh, if you imagine a bank needs uh, some uh, credit management, cr- uh, uh, risk exposure management, and then you have these payments transactional systems, and then you have these courses. Records of systems, cu- customers' accounts, all these things. So these are backend systems.、Uh, I'm working with a backend team right now, but then you also have these,、uh, you can say, product-oriented mid-tier teams、uh, doing a particular in charge of the process of a particular segment, and then we have uh, some um, uh, uh, yet an, another a third kind of team uh, who uh, teams who are responsible for. Uniform customer experience, meaning UX, you know, mobile applications,、uh, mobile payment applications. Also, for corporate customers, we have all kinds of apps, and then we want a. We don't want, you know, if you have one hundred teams doing all doing UX, all doing、uh, front end deploy- uh, uh, development as well. First of all, you don't、uh, you don't have the com- consistency. Secondly, you, you might end up 
you know, you have to, you don't have that many UX developers to spread through all these teams. So the, it's also a skill matter. And the same goes for backend teams, by the way. So I think cognitive load is the constraint that's made this purely product oriented team an impossibility for us. But I think we are not the only organization that has, that is suffering from this. But within a backend system itself, we're introducing product thinking. So right now, the team I'm, I'm leading is, is a combination of software engineers and data scientists. Uh, we're trying to introduce domain-driven data. So data products is the term we're using. Rather than seeing data as a backend concern, we're, we're introducing data as a product. So we have a, a functional product owner. We also have data product owner in the same team. So... Um... Yeah, I mean the one the one advantage in the product sort of like the mini product companies within a large company to me is the incentive and accountability, you know, through accountability, right? In other words, you get funding as a startup, so to speak, and you have to succeed. And if you don't succeed, it shows up really unmistakably. Not that that is a force, but a lot of times when you're when you're all sort of mishmash together, it's easy to just kind of like pass the blame or something like that. Whereas if you don't deliver your products and if your products don't work and integrate and so forth, it's very, very clear where the problem is. Now that isn't to point out blame or failure. It's actually a good way to say, well, we need to do something about this, right? So the larger organization can then, as any you know company would uh, or any investors would with a, with a startup, they're not going to be happy to see their their investments go down the drain, right? So they're going to do what they can to change that situation, help them to improve. So to me, that's a big advantage. Now, I, I completely get that that isn't going to work for you, for your company right now. But I think it's worth mentioning that there seems to be a good advantage to that. I definitely approach. agree. And that's also what I'm personally, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of product design. So it, doing all designs as a product design. And again, it goes also hand in hand with, um, you know, the quick feedback uh, you would like to introduce with, with these new uh, movements such as uh, DevOps. So if you, if you think of your functionality as a product uh, and then Products. The the, the 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 metaphor you is that you if you have products, then you've got to think about your customers. Products need to have customers, right? So, and then uh, how the customer? How do you satisfy the customers? Well, you need to measure that. So, so what, what would be the metrics you want to measure yourself with? And how often do you want to release like new versions of this product to your to your customer? Like uh, once every nine months, like we used to do. Or if you can just uh, say to say, okay, I can give you a new version of this product every uh, every week, uh, uh, something like that. Even though I probably haven't gone through all the test cycles or whatever, but can we together have this experimentation mindset using these product based development approach? That's uh, that's one of my faves, and I really hope that the whole organization is gonna pick up on that one. Even though we are organized as front-end teams, back-end teams, you know, that, that kind of thing. So you can still do product thinking, yeah. right? So I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the big adjustments for enterprise software developers, whether it's architects or probably even more so the programmers, right, is that with enterprise software, I think there's a very big tendency to just sort of like let the program, the, the software crash but not even elegantly. It's just sort of like, oh, well, you know, what, what should our customers do about that? Well, they can read the stack trace or they can, you know, and, and to me, it's like, no, 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 no. We have to give them a customer experience with this. We have to make anything that goes wrong look seamless to them. And it's not just try again later. You know, it, it's really like providing intelligent feedback and handling things in a way that they may not actually have to even notice that there was a problem. Instead of saying, try again later, say, this may require more time than expected. Please be patient, right? So now we're handling the problem for them in some way, but it takes this kind of thought where the programmer can't be lazy about failure, right? Just for example, 
Yeah, I'm totally with you on that one. Um, in fact, I think this is one of the um, one of the things that uh, we can do much better in also with our platform teams. Usually, uh, when we talk about product teams, we think about stream-aligned teams, like these teams fa- doing customer face, the real customer facing and user customer uh, facing features and functionalities. But in big companies, we also have these uh, platform teams and their customers are actually the other developers. Um, Their job is to boost developer productivity. They need to also adopt this, um, you know, a customer oriented thinking. If if I'm doing infrastructure as code, um, it, it, and and then I'm I'm having a uh, I'm having these API, I'm providing these APIs. How can I make these APIs really really easy to understand? How how can I empathize with my customer? And I think for platform teams, I'm I'm also working with the platform team within within the uh, the the initiative I'm working on. So it's it's an extremely intriguing task. Um, some people, some developers, especially the platform interested developers are not trained in doing things this way. Like, well, why not stack trace? That's, that's what we do every day. I mean, everybody should be able to read stack trace, right? <laughs> so, yeah. It's like today I, I had to create an A record for actually for this podcast uh, <laughs> website that we're trying to get done. Right. And, and uh, I don't know, I don't mess with a records hard, hardly ever. You know what I mean? And I go and I I'm searching for what to do in this case. And what, it, what do I put there for host? I can't remember. And the instructions that you get from people assume that you actually already know how to do this. <laughs> they don't actually tell you how to do this. They just, make some list without any explanation and and they leave out details and it's like okay this is just what you're you know this is your mind thinking about what you do it's not thinking about what other people need to do right yeah precisely. And, and this is very much a, a technical <laughs> viewpoint of things yeah yeah well don't we know that pain i mean uh there are so many i mean i just told uh, that we uh, we have these uh, we just we made our own private cloud so there are a lot of offerings on, on the uh, private cloud when we create a, a kind of a ticket like we also have tickets uh, to uh, like we, i need to have an enclave on, on the cloud of this uh, configuration parameters, those drop downs. Sometimes they're so, I mean, you have to be really good at guessing those values, what they mean, right? <laughs> it's not really a, a self-explanatory. With developers, especially those new ones, sometimes they also have to end up, uh, you know, asking people what, what this means. So it, instead of saving, instead of uh, improving productivity, you actually increase the need for asking around, like this kind of thing, um, because people are also like security related drop downs. You really get want to get those things right. Right. So why not? You can just make a little effort to make those values more understandable. Boy, if only like Google workspace teams heard you. <laughs> um, anyway, so, well, you, you mentioned this, uh, the importance of DevOps, you, you know, briefly, but can you expand on that? Like in in this really big digital transformation effort, how does uh, DevOps play into that? Right. So I think a lot of the traditional enterprises uh, came from a place where you have these uh, projects. Uh, so uh, new, uh, you, you have a business as usual, then you introduce projects to make changes. So software development is these days IT is so integrated in all enterprises. So if you have a if you have a strategic advantage you want to introduce, you've got to involve your IT, basically. So IT development, the div part of the DevOps, has this interest of um, changing things, but the ops part has the opposite interest usually, right? It, their job, they are measured by keeping things stable. They're measured by having as little change as possible. And so you have this intrinsic conflict that you can't solve if you have two different departments or various departments having these separate roles. And then you also have this, uh, because th- there's a knowledge gap. Those uh, ops guys, if they would, if they have to live up to the system stability, they need to understand 
somehow the package code or unpackaged code, whatever their job is, and they need to make time in doing that. And they are not domain experts. So their SLA will be days or if, if you do, usually you do things like this. And these days, what we're trying, well, we're, we're, not, we're not DevOps perfect at all. I mean, uh, we have um, started the journey that we have introduced containerization teams, like the, the ops part, like doing platforms. And then right now, the challenge is just as what we have uh, uh, discussed, the platform teams are thinking, since you still have these two teams, like this is one of the initiative that we have launched, which I personally didn't think is working out because you still have the diffs and ops. You just you just want to platform enable the, the ops with more automation, right? So so it's just a, it's just that to make to, to make the cycle shorter. So right now, um, I've been given the mandate to to do a startup. We talked about startup. So in this particular startup, uh, we are doing the real DevOps. So basically, um, taking the ops in. It, the corporate mandate is to use the platform the ops team is developing. This team I'm leading has got the privilege to say, we take in the ops, we do it ourselves right now. But we have the Java pipeline. That's not a problem because people are used to do it. We also have this data scientists pipeline. And that is a there's a lot of conflict there because data scientists, they're, they are not used to thinking infrastructure. They're math- mathematicians. And so giving them that task is a little bit like beyond their liking. So there's a lot of, um, of the probing we're doing right now is does the DevOps work in, you know, it, with all skills? And if, if so, how can we, how can we do it? So right now, the, the thing we're doing is to say, okay, can we insource the op and then make it our own platform rather than um, uh, uh, and then hire some you know lead uh, uh, platform engineers just with that obligation but it's still in the same team you, there, there's no handoff you don't have to make a specification or you don't have to write a ticket for another team to to deploy so that's one thing but that's only the first element of DevOps there are three ways of DevOps that's only the first way that's to to from from the div to the op that that pipeline the second way is that actually the quick feedback so uh, basically I think I don't know where I read it if it hurts do it more often um, so, <laughs> so so it's got to become a habit of uh, of uh, having these quick feedbacks. So de- de- deploy code really, really, really fast, uh, as fast as possible, and then get the quick feedback from how is it working, and and that um, that is going actually all the way from um, functional uh, features and and infrastructure features. So that's uh, that's the second thing, and then the third way is of course uh, continuous learning and experimentation, and and it might be surprising. I mean, in this world of such fast speed of change in the IT world. I mean, still, I think in traditional uh, group enterprise ITs, people still prefer safety, prefer that, uh, you know, um, manual control structure, um, uh, heavily governed processes, rather than that we can actually build these controls into a automated pipeline. There's still mistrust that we can learn from that process. So, so that that we can do things a little differently than these heavily governance structure. That is still something we're trying to promote as a mindset. We're not there yet. There is a lot of uh, inertia, organizational inertia. DevOps is, I see that with a lot of advantage, uh, benefits, but it's, it's not just a pipeline. I think a lot of people interpret it as a pipeline, but it's really a, a culture. It's a culture. It's such a massive culture change that is required in order to be a real DevOps-enabled uh, team or organization. Uh, we're not there. I'm a person, personally a big fan of that. I think it's going to make a drastic impact on our productivity and on our happiness because it's safety. If you do, if you do everything automated and you do tests upfront and everything is 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 there, so you can do things faster and safer. So there's no longer this concept called quick and dirty, right? It's quick and safe. The quicker, the safer. So that's 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 the way I see it. It's uh, yeah, you can see I'm I'm really passionate about this topic, and that's why we're talking. <laughs> so just just to let the listeners know that um, 
I don't even remember exactly when it was, maybe six months ago or nine months ago, I saw a post from you on LinkedIn and I'm so happy that I did. But here I see you, you know, talking about all, you know, a lot of people just talk about DDD like just DDD and it's not just DDD. I mean, just the architecture part of it. There's so much more to it, which in our, you know, my latest book with uh, Tomas, still not released as of this time, but you know, it's really taking that kind of very holistic view of, yeah, experimentation, discovery, things like this, but that it's so much bigger than, than DDD. And yet DDD really counts. But when I read your post, I just said, she gets it. (laughs) She gets that it's a bigger deal than, you know, coding in the small or, you know, designing in the small versus designing systems and systems and systems thinking is quite a bit different. So then what I saw in your post had something about an architecture runway, about facilitating like a discovery experience about a domain. And well, you're more familiar with that than I am. But when I saw that, I said, I would really like to have a discussion with Jin about this. So can you talk a little bit about this experience that you have with one or more teams and the the runway and, and ramping up and learning? Yeah, sure. The architecture runway is, I don't know if, if uh, it's the safe framework that started it or just they just uh, borrowed it somewhere else. The first time I saw it is when I went through, you know, the, the, the scaled agile framework, acronym SAFE. I saw it in one of their diagrams uh, as um, in a way of um, organizing or basically architecturally organizing small teams. It's called Architecture Runway. I didn't do any uh, uh, deeper research about SAFE. I'm not cer- SAFE certified uh, either. So, but just seeing, <laughs> just, <laughs> <laughs> just seeing that term, that rang a bell with me. Like, okay, this is a really, really g- good metaphor. Because that's, that's at the time when I observed, like, we've been spotified. All these teams, we're supposed to be self-empowering, making the fast decisions locally. Why are our planes not taking off faster? So, so where's the runway? So, how, why don't we see that runway? So, that was the image. I imagine. I immediately started imagining. Okay, it's a big mess on the in the airport, and all the planes are. They're, they're there, but they, they're afraid of running in, uh, across each other or just uh, clash into each other. Right? So, um, so, so that's why I started uh, like using that term when I was given the task. At that time, my role was the DDD consultant in, in, in the company. So um, again, I was basically assigned a, a domain, Spotify domain, to lead the discovery work with the end goal of developing better APIs at that time. What I quickly realized is that I can't just work with that domain team. What they need is a vocabulary to articulate about their context as well. They have that that tribe has a target architect had a target architecture also back then. But it seems that not everybody has the same understanding of it, and some people, some developers, didn't even know the existence of it. They probably know that it's somewhere on some Confluence page, but they've never been uh, looking into it. I mean, if you look into the Confluence page, you might get a shock because there's so much information. There's like, well, yeah, I, I can read through it, but sometimes, you know, developers and, and, and development team, we're really busy people. And, and not to say anything bad about this page, I think people really put in a lot of efforts in describing the, the architecture elements, but it just didn't stick. So what I was trying to do is to say, okay, how can I, as a DDD facilitator, try something I can do to lower the cognitive load of perceiving the context, having a more succinct language, um, having a language that people can remember, like only introducing seven more terms so that you can get the whole picture in your head. Like we used to say that we human beings I think some, maybe some people can, but most people can do, uh, have a short-term memory of seven plus minus two. So you can't put, have so many things in your head, especially if you have, as a developer, you've got to go into detail with a feature you're responsible for, right? So, so that was the basic, the, the, the point of departure of that architecture runway. It's just uh, uh, my personal in, in simplification 
my interpretation of their the most important elements of their context. So I but I didn't introduce the runway in the beginning of a workshop series. I usually ask a chief architect or lead engineer uh, that has a big picture understanding of the domain's context map. Instead of doing a technical context mapping, I'll just ask them to say, okay, how can you explain it to an alien from another planet? You know, you're not allowed to use any jargons. You just have to explain it to your grandma, for instance. So that's a runway for the grandma. So <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And I have to say, too, that as you gave me some temporary access directly to the Miro board that you used for one of these runways, maybe the one you're uh, speaking of, what I saw immediately is just that this is a true agility, agile way of working. And, and I don't mean any disrespect to SAFE or the, you know, whole SAFE movement, but I do have to say that if you were to start this effort with your grandma, <laughs> no way you would have ever finished, right? And, and of course, these people aren't your grandma, but imagine what it would take if you were more interested in SAFE than in delivering a product, right? And now you have to like sort of correct everyone as you're moving along and say, that's not how we do that in SAFE. We need to do this. That's just an impedance to productivity. And to me, it's good that you know about some of the terms or ideas within SAFE, but you can extract those things or they already existed before SAFE and they have taken them in. So it's not like SAFE is some brand new invention of Scrum or even outside of Scrum or whatever it happens to be. But the idea is, and what I try to emphasize with everyone that I work with is, you just take the ideas that work under a situation and use the tools under that situation and don't worry about the order in which you do them and the, this, the, the ceremony and you just do what makes sense right now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, to, to be honest, I also, you know, safe, safe is so huge. So the first, even even a brief look at it, I think it was kind of beyond my seven plus minus two. I was just like saying, okay, to implement this, if if we have to follow every pro process step, it's not system thinking anymore. You mentioned system thinking. So basically, if if safe is probably very good for strategic consultancies, I don't know. So it's a it's good business. But however, I think if an enterprise starts implementing the safe process just by taking uh, literally face value of its parts, then we truly would see what Akoff called a system is not the sum of its parts. So it's an indivisible whole. The moment you take it apart, it loses its essential properties. I think something like that. I, I, I probably be paraphrasing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, to be fair, if it is good for the consultancy how good is it for the company that they're consulting with? So maybe they can get people to walk in, in lockstep with them and follow their lead. And this is a way of controlling that. And so I can see how it works out for them because we're not going to lose control of all these teams, right? How, how are we going to succeed instead of just more like trust, right? Isn't it more about trust where you say, okay, we're going to give these really smart people an initiative and they have to work to get this right. And I think that really with agile as in agility, I see it as four different steps, right? That need to happen. And, it, and it's just really these small, you know, iterative steps where you create increments over time. And, and, it, and it's really just identify work, you know, work that can be done within a certain number of days, like you said, maybe less than a week so that you can release a new product version every week. And then you work on those. And then at the end, you, you summarize like, okay, how did we do? Did we get all the work done within our time frame? I don't even like time box in this case, but you know, it's just like a time frame that we gave ourselves. Should we extend it by a day? Because it would be really good if we could finish these things. And then it's just agile. You're not, you're not saying, the, the shipping of the product one day later is not the end of the world, you know, because you have to meet something that's already in a diagram somewhere, you know, like a, do you, what do you think about that? I, definitely, I totally agree with you. There are also quite uh, these two week sprints, right? There, there are also people who are extremely adamant on that, well, you can't do three week sprints. Otherwise, it's not agile. 
So, so I see this uh, all the time, but I seem also to observe that at least in, with my background, with, with the, my organization, we've tried Agile in different contexts before we've been Spotify. Um, and so people have seen that Agile is not the, uh, you know, it's not the hammer that, uh, <laughs> that, that can uh, struck, uh, strike every nail in uh, perfectly. So, so there is a, there's this uh, tremendous amount of tolerance for doing things differently as well. So, so what I'm saying is that I, um, again, maybe I'm biased. There, there's an observation, personal observation that you can do agile in whatever way you want, uh, kind of set, sentiment as well. And so, uh, for instance, um, <laughs> uh, there, um, I think some teams have a tendency, uh, to say, okay, if you can't finish a work item in this sprint, no problems. We just move it to the next sprint. When I close down, like with tools like Jira, when you close down a sprint, all the unfinished items, it goes to the next sprint. So uh, if you're being too tolerant about that, you always have work in progress. You never have finished work. You don't have this single piece flow like what DevOps is advocating. So finish the stuff, the, a limited amount of stuff before you can start the next one, right? Yeah, so, so I think... If only some teams have been given Agile a little bit deeper thinking, then they would have taken some of these practices a little more serious rather than, oh yeah, well, finish stuff in one sprint, it doesn't really fit us. So let's just do like a forever rolling window. <laughs> uh, so so that's, a, um, that's a, I think I, I've seen the, um, the opposite of safe as well. I, th- I guess that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And... I think what you're saying is think of the maybe additional disadvantage of moving it to the next sprint. Then what? You have to wait two weeks before the customer gets that when it could have been delivered in one more day. That is agile, right? We're just saying, well, we have to, we really need to deliver this. It's very important. It's just taking us a day longer, but we're certain we can finish in a day. And you do, then they they get it one day later. And I don't know, maybe you didn't even have to promise them that it would be done in four or five days instead of six days or something. And, you know, you just say likely by then. And then if it takes one more business day, it takes one more, you know? So I don't know. At one point in time, I was um, kind of known as the person who said, let's see what happens. (laughs) So I, you know, to some extent, I guess I've worked with an agile agility mindset for quite a long time because I just couldn't kind of deal with, I guess, just the closed box kind of thinking. And and maybe that's it. Maybe I'm just not smart enough to use safe or something like that, right? I mean, if if, the, if it takes the kind of mind that can follow all these procedures and, and keep all that stuff cached in your head, okay, I'll admit I can't do that. But I think the other way works. Me neither, Mom. That reminds me that uh, when I was uh, doing this DDD consultancy thing, I was asked by um, uh, one of the managers to make a checklist of the DDD thing one must do if one wants to be DDD enabled in a team, for a team. I think I have always said I can't make that list. A step-by-step guide of doing DDD is an oxymoron. You can't, you can't really do step-by-step DDD, right? Every situation is different. But I think even, and this goes for DDD and any safe or any other best practice <laughs> in the industry, at the moment it's, uh, it's being treated like a checklist. Um, it's uh, paved its way for its own uh, grave, right? So. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's sort of like well, uh, interestingly, I was I was teaching uh at a company in in Germany some years ago and and there was one of the students in particular seemed to be very unhappy through all, I don't know, I think it was a 3-day workshop maybe. And and I constantly would ask him, you know, like is this okay? And he would never really say anything. And then like right at the end of the third third day, I'm just gonna call it three days, and uh, and he just sort of like he said, "You've been talking for three days, and I still don't know how to do this, right?" And I said, "What do you mean?" And and I said, "I you know I've taught you all these concepts," and he says, "But I don't know how to put it together." Like, and I said, "Do you mean like a list?" And he said, "Exactly, I need a list." So I I I did write this list on the whiteboard. 
And I started incorporating that in my workshop because there are just some people who absolutely need a list. But as you said, a list doesn't really work because then, I mean, you have to list things in order. If you make a list, it's in order. I mean, you could scramble it all up, but then people wouldn't see the steps that they would need to take at some point in time. But to me, this is just simply, it's like maybe the way people are educated. I don't know. Are they educated by saying, you have to do things in this order. You, you know, you learn by rote. And, and I don't know how it is to learn, you know, in, in the Chinese language or culture, but that's very much, you know, how we go through school is, is learning by a lot of things are just by rote. You have to remember this and do this in this way. But to me, when you, <clears throat> when you gain experience, kind of like the Shu Hari, I, you must have heard of it, right? And, and, uh, and, and to me, being at the re point is way better than being at, the student point or even the teacher of students, right? Where you know, you know the steps well enough that you can now ingrain that into students. I would just much rather take what's there and like I said, just use it when I know it's time. Yeah. So that's a totally a second your, your uh, perspective. That's uh, I, I also kind of, um, I do uh, appreciate the need from like, beginners for having a, a list. In a way, we all learn differently. So if a list would do for some people to get started, I, I don't have anything against it. I'm just, I'll, I'll do whatever I can as a coach, as a, a facilitator to say, you know, again, these three levels. So first you might need that list. You, you need to be routined in doing event storming. You need to be routined in doing wordly mapping. You need to be, you need to do use case modeling, all this. So one, two, three, four. But once you've done them once, then you probably have your own opinion that the order doesn't have to be like that. And that event storming works less well for this domain than some other whiteboard approach, maybe. And then uh, eventually uh, people would then get there where, you know, tools that don't matter. You, you, every tool leads to the same result, the, the, the final level, right? I, I'm really trying to promote that in whatever I do, because that's really my personal journey as well. Uh, so when people ask me to make a list, like to start with, these days I make a list. I have become more humble and more accommodating in a way. <laughs> well, and that's why I made the list. And this just <laughs> thrilled this student, right? At the end, he was like, I get it, you know, and that's fine. But I just tried to emphasize to him and, and then I put it into my course material as a slide. And I just said, be very careful that you don't use this as an ordered collection, so to speak. Right? In <laughs> other words, it, it's in a list form, but don't think that you have to do it in this order because it might not be the right time to do one of these things. Or you may check, take one from the middle and move it to the top. But it's just a matter of what helps you to learn more quickly. Yeah. And, and so I absolutely, you have to accommodate everybody's way of learning, but the goal is to really bring those people up to the re part, right? <laughs> is to just make them say like, you have permission to think on your own. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, isn't that great? Doesn't it dignify people to know Yeah, you can think on your own because you're smart and you have experience. For sure. Like at the end of the day, if, uh, if uh, I see a person with this, uh, with the similar kind of aha moments as I have had with domain discovery, with whatever um, tool or uh, um, discovery technique I have had uh, gained a lot of takeaway from, I'm so, I'm just so um, happy. I just feel this is, this is, I just made my day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, let, we're, we're getting maybe a little bit near um, the end, the comfort, well, the comfort zone for people to listen. But um, I just wondered what your thoughts are on, you know, it kind of a big shift in uh, gears here, but specification by example, also known as BDD, or how does that have a role in architecture or does it in understanding the domain? If you look at it at, at a system level, how does that play in, do you think? Well, um, that's one of my 
absolute favorite specification, by example. So I'm actually working with the team on uh, exactly this. You can say it as an approach. So, so, so if you imagine we, what we do uh, when we try to understand uh, a new business change, a new requirement or uh, the domain itself, um, what we start by doing is using whatever techniques to, and then we have all these discovery bubbles, like you do, it's very messy, event storming and, and uh, well, some, some types of event storming might be less uh, uh, messy, but eventually you get a lot of comments and, and, and stuff on a whiteboard, on Miro, on whatever. So at that time, there is, so, so there's in the traditional software development life cycle, there is, there's a point when some kind of a business discovery going into a requirement form. Right, that requirement form used to take place in very abstract terms, or uh, even using user story as a customer uh, in order to drive faster to work. I would need a car of this uh, uh, characteristics, something like that. But then that's been also a very abstract thing. So, so basically, specification by example is first of all, it, it has this uh, very domain driven or DDD thing of using concrete scenarios to anchor an understanding, business understanding. So, um, instead of doing requirements by abstraction, it's doing uh, requirements by examples, by scenarios. Now, it doesn't mean that the first examples we come up with will end up being the final specified examples going into our specification, but that's the start. So there's also a refinement phase. And so uh, a lot of examples can get consolidated into one in the end. But what we're trying to do, we're to, like uh, in this startup I'm doing, uh, also using DevOps, what we're trying to do is to say, okay, once we've done the discovery bubbles and we had these examples using personas rather than the abstract customer as a user or whatever, we, we named them. We named them Dave, Dave Mata, and the children all have names uh, like in, in our domain. And then um, what we do is to say, okay, once we've got, got that, we would need to sort of formalize that into a kind of specification. And that specification we do using uh, a cucumber format, so the gherkin given when then, uh, also using plain business language. And then we, we have this specification sort of more formalized than the examples themselves. Afterwards, we would say, okay, this specification we would like to be executable. So, so that means using some kind of an automation tool to code enable this, this specification. This specification, ideally it's done by a developer, but in real life, some developers are just not geared to write things that way. So we have these three amigos. Sometimes it could be a test person, could be a business person. That person that let's say just the business person went in first and did the specification. Then the next step is that the developers needs to refine the specification because what, what is Making sense for a business person doesn't necessarily go effectively into code, into test cases. And now we're talking about functional test cases. So there's a refinement. Afterwards, those those specifications has become, you know, for our for our sake, it's acceptance criteria. It's also executable specification and living documentation in one go. So if if I onboard a new developer tomorrow, all the functionality we've done. Uh, well, not the trivial ones, but all the hardcore domain logic is guarded by such a set. So it's it's like three pluses in one go. It's going to take some time to begin with, but we've seen really, really great benefits going forward. As I see it, the biggest task of an architect of architecture is basically to develop a software solution that has an impact on one hand, but also is easy to maintain in, in the future by anybody, and not just by the team who have been part of this discovery bubble and specification, by example, helped us doing that. I, I used to say to my team that uh, if I have a few uh, like uh, silver bullets, specification by example is one of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And I think you were kind of saying this, but just to make it explicit, you cannot have an architecture unless you understand the scenarios, right? There, there's no like, okay, why are you going to make that architectural selection, right? Why will you do that? Oh, because I learned about that. I just read about, you know, is that it? 
No, we should be mature enough to say, I don't have to learn that pattern or use that pattern to prove my value as a, as an architect. My value as an architect is understanding how the software will be used very precisely and then designing an architecture around that. Yeah, that's really well said. <laughs> so, um, pro and, and just one other thing that I thought about with specification by example, the one caution that I give is that it is possible because of that sort of executable separation, right? You can actually make the tests pass without even realizing what's in the specification, right? And I do completely agree, but you need some really sort of experienced people writing the executable tests, as in that they're going to be loyal to what is actually in the specification and not just kind of wimp out, so to speak, in the executable code. And um, it's actually not easy at all because yeah. it's not a test script because a test script says you open this page and you, 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 you enter this input and then you procedurally do this and that. It's not that at all. It's outcome driven. And I have seen developers writing the algorithm in the example saying, okay, this code first checks this condition and then goes and check this condition. Then, go. Well, that's not specification by example. We need to define the outcome. So why are we doing this? Uh, why are we having these two inputs? And how can you describe the output using business language? And that is that is not easy at all. It's not just like a second nature for a developer to, to think that way. I mean, TDD and BDD, there's such a great gap between these two practices. TDD is just you, 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 you test every method, you, you test every path, if then else and whatever, uh, for loops, all kinds of conditions. But BDD is actually what we talked about earlier, thinking, empathizing with the user, empathizing with the people who are going to impact it by your software. And that's, um, that needs some training <laughs> to do. You're a very thoughtful person, very smart, and it's been a privilege to have you on, you know, to talk to you on the podcast. And I hope other people get to learn from you because you have so many good things to share. So thank you so much. It's been an honor and privilege to have you to interview and thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. It's a true pleasure. Hopefully we can uh, continue this conversation in the future, maybe, um, and, and uh, look forward to, to learning more from you. So. Well, likewise. I'd love to uh, continue the conversation in some other context as well. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E -L -E dot I-O. Thanks for listening.